Hi friends, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Cedar Mill and it's great to have you joining us online today as we continue our series that we've called Unlikely. And one of the main points of this series is to confront this notion that God is predictable. That God sits up in heaven with this list of rules and expectations and that our job as followers of Christ in this world is to figure out and then follow God's rules. This is actually the opposite of what we see in scripture. In fact, the Bible is not written as an instruction manual. It's not, it's not a list of rules for us to follow. It's actually the story of God working throughout human history, working in different ways in the lives of different people at different times. And one of the things we discover as we read the stories of scripture is that God is often unpredictable. Who he is, his character is consistent. We can count on that. But how he chooses to accomplish his will quite often throws us for a loop. Pastor Carl talked about this a few weeks ago, um, and he used the word surprise. God often does surprising things. He colors outside of our lines. He, he refuses to limit himself to our religious expectations. See, God is not really into religion. And today we're looking at yet another moment where God is acting in an unlikely way through an unlikely set of people. So if you have a Bible, grab it and turn with me to Judges chapter four. I love this story. And it takes place during a time when Israel didn't really have an official leader. There was no king. There was not an official leadership process. They didn't have elections. There was not a monarchy where a crown was passed down. And the idea was that God was supposed to be leading his people. The people were to look to him for leadership. But during this time, the people have begun to veer away. They'll veer away from God and he has to continually bring them back. He has to continually deliver them from the calamity of their ways, the, the results of them not following him in this world. And so he raises up some leaders, some people, we call them judges. And these judges are people who for a certain season were empowered by God to lead his people, to bring them back to himself. That's where our story takes place today. We're in Judges chapter four. I'll start us off in verse one. After Ehud's death, pause. We're three, we're three words in. I'm already pausing you because before we get to our main characters today, I want to say a quick word about this guy, Ehud, because he was also a judge. And in a very different way, he was also an unlikely choice for the Lord. Ehud's entire story, it's brief. It's just 19 verses. You can find it right in uh, Judges chapter three. It starts this way in Judges chapter three, verse 15. The Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, a judge, a leader, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. Now, why do you think the author points out here that Ehud was a left-handed man? Is it because God prefers right-handed people over left-handed people? I'd like to think so. I'm right-handed. That sounds good to me. But it's not what God's getting at here. Literally, the phrase in that text says, he was hindered in his right hand. 
He was hindered in his right hand. And what the writer wants people to know here is that God has chosen somebody with a disability to deliver his people. Now, for us, that's not a radical thought. That's not something that really shocks us. But in the ancient world, people thought much differently. And yet God, time and time and time again, chooses people who are unlikely. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. All right, here we have the setting of our story today. For 20 years, the Israelites have been oppressed by the Canaanites and specifically this commander of the army named Sisera. In our story today, Sisera is the bad guy. Sisera's the villain. Think Bin Laden, think Stalin, think Lex Luthor or the Joker, someone like that. And here's what we know about Sisera. This is what makes him such a formidable foe. He's got 900 iron chariots. This may not sound like a big deal to us, but it was a big deal back then because at this point in history, the Israelites don't have iron. They do not have this technology. And so when their wood weapons would go up against the Canaanites' iron weapons, they would not often win. General Sisera is sort of like Iron Man, except he's a bad guy. And these iron chariots were the ancient equivalent of our tanks. They, they were big, they were formidable, they were strong, and they would mow down dozens and dozens of Israelite foot soldiers. So the Israelites, once again, are in trouble. They need a deliverer. They need someone with tremendous strength and unshakable courage and fearless faith. And now we'll learn that off in the hill country of Israel, there is such a hero. Verse four, now Deborah, a prophet, the wife, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh and Naphtali. And she said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Pause. One of the things I love about the Bible is how honest it is. The Bible is so, so honest. It doesn't cut corners. It doesn't gloss over realities. It just takes issues head on. Because in the ancient world, friends, women did not often lead and command men. But here in our story today, this is exactly what 
is happening. And the Bible doesn't skirt this issue. It's actually unapologetic about this fact. Deborah was leading the nation of Israel. Notice here that it says that she sent for Barak. Barak, by the way, is the general, the leader of Israel's army. And in the book of Judges, much like in our world today, the person who sends for someone else is the person in charge. They're the person with authority. You don't send for the king. Go get the king and bring him to me. You don't send for the president, right? I'll see the president now. No, the president sends for you. So clearly Deborah sends for, the, for Barak. She is the one in authority here. Surprise. And yet the original readers who did not live in the era of women's empowerment would have certainly thought to themselves, okay, here's this lady, but now, now here comes the guy, right? Barack will most likely, he will certainly be the hero. He'll be the one to really save the day. Verse eight, Barack said to Deborah, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now, remember this statement. It's a big statement. It's a little bit of a shocking statement. And there's some foreshadowing happening here. The Bible is sort of pointing ahead to something that's going to happen down the road. And remember this, the Bible loves a plot twist. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now, certainly something is happening here. Something's happening with Barak where he, he doesn't want to go off to this battle without Deborah. And what we're being told real subtly is that he is actually relying on Deborah. He's counting on her more than he is trusting in the Lord. And there's something to learn here for all of us. You see, it is often easy for, for us, for you and for me, to rely on someone else who was close to the Lord instead of relying on the Lord ourselves. And friends, God does not want us to do this. God wants us to seek good counsel. Yes, God loves strong, godly community. Of course, but ultimately he wants us, you and me, to trust in him, not just in others who are close to him. So that's one thing. But let me say another important quick word here. Sometimes this passage gets taught in a way that suggests that the only reason that Deborah was leading at this time in history was because Israel had gotten so bad. Things were so horrible. Things had gotten so desperate. There, there were no men around to lead. Like no guys available. I guess we'll choose Deborah. Like Barak, like he was supposed to be the guy, but because his faith is weak and he drops the ball, God now has to go to plan B. And plan B is Deborah. But friends, that's not honest. That's not how the story goes. Deborah in this story is established as the clear leader from the very beginning before Barak is even mentioned. You see, often in churches, the subjects of men and women and leadership and their roles can be a very controversial one. It's a subject where people can get dogmatic and division gets created. 
There's a lot of, of controversy and debate about this. But here is where we can all agree. God made men and God made women in his image to be a complement to one another. And so when we partner together and value the voices of one another, we often get the best results. Men need the perspective of women and women need the perspective of men. Women of Cedar Mill Bible Church, let me say this to you very clearly. We need your voices. Sometimes in the church, women can feel hesitant about sharing their thoughts or using their gifts. And we do not want that to be the case here at Cedar Mill Bible. Women, we need you, not just so that we can become some liberated place that the culture approves of, but so that we can be the best, most effective, God-honoring church we can be. And we've, all, and we're all, we've always been better together, always. Deborah and Barak go off to battle together. Now, verse 11. Now, Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. Now, the names in this passage are killing me, but we'll continue on. This verse, by the way, seems out of place. If you're reading through this chapter, we're cruising along, Deborah and Barak and this battle that's coming. And then all of a sudden, verse 11, and we're like transported to a different place, a completely seeming, seemingly different storyline. But friends, let me tell you this. The Bible is sort of flashing over to this other spot. And this verse will come into play later in the story. It's like, here we are. And there's this other storyline. And at some point, these two storylines are going to merge. Okay, verse 12, back to Deborah and Barak and the battle. We find out in these verses that, that Sisera hears that they are on the move, that Deborah and Barak have, have gathered their troops and that they've all gone down to this mountain where they want to fight the battle against Sisera. And so he takes his men and his 900 iron chariots to the Kishon River, to the Kishon River. Now it's important for us to understand here that the Kishon River it is not an Oregon river. The Kishon River is an, a California river. And that is to say, it's a river with no water in it. And this is why Sisera goes there. He goes to this dried up river basin because it would be a wonderfully strategic place for him to fight a battle with his chariots. I don't know if you know a lot about chariots, if you've ever ridden in a chariot, but they don't do that great on mountains but they're highly effective down in the flatlands, down in a dry riverbed. They will do the job. Verse 14, Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. This is a huge victory. 
And friends, we don't get a lot of detail here about how this victory happened, but we do find out later in the next chapter, in chapter five, that the reason that Sisera has to flee is that suddenly in the midst of this battle, or right as this battle is ensuing, a rainstorm comes. And this rainstorm causes the riverbed to turn essentially into a giant pit of mud. And so now all of a sudden, Sisera's big advantage, his 900 iron chariots down here in the mud, they're worthless. See, chariots don't do all that great in the mud. They sink in the mud. They get stuck in the mud. And what's remarkable about this story is that the entire thing happens during the dry season when rain almost never fell. There is no way that Cicero would have brought his chariots down into that riverbed if he even thought there was the the slightest chance of rain. But now Cicero's army is done, is completely wiped out. He's the only one left and he's fleeing on foot. Verse 17, Cicero, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an allegiance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Remember this group. Remember this family from verse 11. Remember the kind of one-off verse that was weird? The, the, the family that's camped out near this tree in the middle of nowhere. This is where now Sisera ends up. It's also important to know that the Kenites were a nomadic people who were often mistreated by the Canaanites And they were used primarily in this season, at this time period, as blacksmiths to produce the very weapons of iron that the Canaanites used to dominate all the people around them. That's Jael. That's her tribe. That's her family. Verse 18, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him up. See, she's being gracious. She's being kind. She's inviting him in. Verse 20, he says this to her, stand in the doorway of the tent. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him, that's Sisera, while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. That's maybe the most obvious statement in the entire Bible. Yes, when a tent peg gets driven through your head, you die. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple dead. Bet you didn't see that one coming, did you? You see, friends, one of the reoccurring themes of the Bible and in the book of Judges is this. God hates oppression. God hates oppression. He hates it when the powerful oppress the vulnerable, when the strong take advantage of the weak. And in this story today, God decides to do something about it. He decides to take down one of the most powerful tyrants of the day, not with an army, but by using a woman living on the outskirts of society. Don't miss the wonderful ending here, friends. 
Because most of you, you've never heard this story. You couldn't have told me this story if I asked you to before today, and that's okay. But listen up. The hero of this epic tale is not a mighty general or a powerful king or even an ethnic Israelite. Our hero today seemingly has the wrong gender, the wrong race, and even the wrong occupation. But in the end, J.L. kills this villain. And if you keep reading, what you'll discover is that the entire next chapter, Judges chapter five, is called the Song of Deborah. And this song isn't just a merry tune. It's not just a celebration of victory. But much like the songs of our day, it is meant to offer reflection and theological meaning to the story we just heard. In other words, Deborah sings this song to say, hey, listen up, this is what we should learn from this story. And listen to these words. Most blessed of women, BJL, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent dwelling women. He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet, he sank. He fell. There he lay. At her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. You see, what scholars tell us is that At that last point of the song, Deborah is most likely mimicking the blows of the hammer against Sisera's skull. And again, here's the point. God stands mightily against oppression and his people should too. That's a lesson, friends, that we here at Cedar Mill Bible Church are learning and taking more seriously these days in lots of areas, and it's a good thing. Toward the end of Deborah's song, she actually begins to mock Sisera. She's driving this point home, how much God hates oppression, and she begins to mock Sisera. In verse 28, she paints the picture of Sisera's mother peering out the window and wondering, why is my son Sisera taking so long to return from battle? Like, why has he not come home? Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? And then the answer that she gives herself in verse 30, are they, that's the soldiers, are my son and his army not finding and dividing the spoils? A woman or two for each Man? You see, it's assumed here that Sisera has won the battle and that he and his men are now plundering and raping the women of Israel. But we know the real story. We know how it really ends. We know that the God who stands against injustice and oppression has used two women to take this evil man down. And so friends, as we close... Let me leave you with a question. It's actually a question that Deborah raises in this song, the song that she sings in chapter five. Right in the middle of this song, starting in verse 13, Deborah begins praising the tribes of Israel, the people of God that showed up to fight against Sisera. And then she curses 
those who stayed home. Listen, the people of the Lord came down to me against the mighty. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Machir, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear a, bear a commander's staff. The princes of Iskar were with Deborah. Yes, Iskar was with Barak, sent under his command into the valley. But in the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheep pens to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the terraced fields. You see, friends, the question that Deborah is raising for the people of God then and now is, are you in the battle? Are you in the fight? Are you joining God in the fight for kingdom justice in this world? Or are you just sitting it out? Friends, let me ask you today, let me ask us, what battle is God calling you into right now? Where is he asking you to step out in faith and trust him and fight for him and his values and his justice in this world? You know, one of the things that I've, I've seen and I felt it personally as a result of this pandemic season that we're in is a tendency for people to just back off of all their commitments and retreat into places where they feel, feel safe and comfortable. And, and for a season, that may have been okay. For a season, that may have been wisdom, but it has been almost two years now. And friends, the Christian life cannot be played from the sidelines. Too many of us have, have disengaged from actively participating in ministry and have reduced church to attending a weekly service on campus or online. And so maybe today, Deborah wants to remind us, wants to remind you and me that there are battles still to fight that God is calling us as his people and he wants to use us and he wants to use you. Because in case you didn't know it, evil is still active in this world. Oppression is still happening, injustice all around us. And people's hearts and lives are constantly being led away in this world from the abundant life of joy and hope and meaning and peace and freedom that God longs for them to have. So friends, we must take our cues from Deborah and JL and get in the fight somewhere. Friends, every Sunday, every Sunday, we have kids here on campus who come and need to be loved and cared for and taught about Jesus. Get in the fight. Every Wednesday, our youth gather to be strengthened and encouraged and discipled in the ways of walking through this world with God. Get in the fight. We have seniors as a part of this church family who are now shut in and are longing for someone to just show up and pray with them and remind them that they are not abandoned and they are not forgotten. Get in the fight. We have missionaries that need to be supported 
They need to be encouraged as they seek to share the message of the gospel around the world. We have outreach ministries that are sharing the hope of the gospel and the compassion of Jesus and the justice of God right here in this city. You could be a part of it. Get in the fight. We have ministries like Alpha where people with questions and doubts and concerns can come and learn about God and the life-giving hope of following Jesus in this world. You could be a part of that. Get in the fight. Friends, here's the question. What battle is God calling you into right now? Are you in a battle? Are you listening for God's call? Are you willing to respond? Because here's the good news. God hasn't just saved you for heaven. He saved you to join him in the work of heaven right here. When Jesus died on that cross, friends, and rose to life, defeating death for you and me, the the message wasn't, now we can just sit around and wait for eternity. No. If you've received the amazing grace of God in your life, let that grace and God's spirit in you empower you for the battle that he's calling you to fight. Where is God calling you to join him in the fight in these days? That's the question I want to leave you with this morning. God bless you, friends. Let's pray and I'll dismiss you. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your sovereignty, for the way that you use people, unlikely people. I thank you for these two women, for their courage, for their bravery, for their faithfulness, May we have the same courage and bravery and faithfulness in our day, Lord, for the battles that you have called us into. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to follow your call that we may be people who join you in the work of the kingdom in this world. That's our prayer, God. That's what we want. Do it in us for your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, friends. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.